lovely men. Great, great message in all these hymns and songs we've sung today about the time of his sacrifice, the, the glory of his sacrifice, and then about his call upon our life calling our name coming a day when he'll call our name and we will go uh, we need to be ready for that and that's what the writer of Hebrews is concerned about that we be ready for that take your Bibles and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 3 we have looked at two Sundays ago we were in verses 1 through 6 then last Sunday we observed the Lord's Supper together and did not look at Hebrews, but we come back today to look at verses 7 through really 12. The, the whole context of this passage this morning is 7 through 19, uh, through the end of the chapter. But I'm going to break that into two sermons, one today and one the Sunday after Easter, uh, after next Sunday. So again, two weeks from today. But I want us to look primarily at verses 7 through 11, and I'm going to tie 12 into it just to give some admonition there. Because really all that verses 7 through 11 is is the writer of Hebrews quoting from Psalm 95 you can it's one of the most clear quotes direct quotes in all of Hebrews it's it's not exactly uh, word for word because he he just uses some descriptions rather than actually naming some names of Meribah and Massa but he does he, he does pretty much give us the exact context the exact statement that the writer of Psalm 95 gives us. And so uh, he's seeing that as an important thing to understand as we come to look at this whole concept of warnings that he's about to give us. Now he's talking about how Jesus is our great apostle, he's our great high priest of our confession, and those are important to remember that he's, he's really wanting us to understand who Jesus is all throughout this book. But at the same time, he's wanting to be sure that we hear the warnings that are very real warnings about standing firm and about continuing in the faith and about not falling away. Because to fall away is evidence that there was a problem, there was a defect, there was a flaw from the very beginning. Uh, to fall away proves that there was no, uh, no reality there in a very real sense of the word. And we'll talk about that more in a couple of weeks as we come to those latter parts of, of this chapter. But I want you to see what he says today introducing this warning by introducing Psalm 95. He, he, he comes in verse 7 and he says, Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says. Now two things before we go any further. He uses therefore. And, and so that indicates to us, I hope you remember, that we ought to see what he's just said before that. That what he's about to give us in quoting Psalm 95 is also contingent on what he's just been saying. And verse 6 is the most immediate con, uh, context, obviously. He said, but Christ was faithful as a son over the house uh, whose house we are. If we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. So he says, therefore, based on that statement, that we are the house of God and we prove to be the house of God if we hold fast to our hope and hold fast with confidence that, uh, that hope until the very end. So therefore, on the basis of that, just as the Holy Spirit says, second thing he makes clear in that verse is his high view 
very high view, extremely high view of Scripture. He doesn't say, now David wrote in Psalm 95, or he doesn't say the psalmist wrote in Psalm 95, but he said, therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says. He understands that the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, what was his Bible. He didn't have all these New Testament books at that time. They were still being compiled and written by the apostles and by others. He wants us to understand that he sees the Psalms as not so much David writing, and Moses wrote one or two of them, and a few others did, they were collected. But he wants us to understand that his view of the Old Testament is, this is what the Holy Spirit says. This is what God says. This is what the Father has spoken. And ultimately, this is what the Son is telling us that we need to understand carefully. So we ought to see very quickly that he has a high view of Scripture. And, and folks, just quite simply, that ought to be our view of Scripture. We ought to come to the Scripture not say, well... Why did Paul say that? Or why did Peter say that? Or why did John write that down? No, the, the key is this is what God is saying through his apostles, through his prophets, through those whom he used to communicate his word to us. So we ought to come to the scripture and say, this is what God has said. This is what the Holy Spirit is saying. And he's saying it to me if I'm a child of his. If I'm a part of this household, if I'm a part of this family, this is what he's saying to me. And he talks to us about daily living. He talks to us about all sorts of things. But we ought to hear the Bible as being God's word to his people, especially those who are part, or are those who are part of his household, part of his church. Well, listen to the whole reading. Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me as in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore I was angry with this generation, and I said, they always go astray in their heart. And they did not know my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. Be careful. Everyone who's hearing this, and we talked about at the beginning of Hebrews, that it's laid out in a sermonic form. It very likely was a sermon that was preached to the church, to these people, either preached verbally or, or preached in written form and sent to them as an epistle, as a letter. But it's a sermon. It has all the characteristics of sermon. And here, the writer of Hebrews says, I want you to hold fast with confidence the hope until the very end. And this is what the Holy Spirit says about that. And he begins by talking about the Israel's testing in the wilderness. And not only their testing, but they're failing miserably. Isn't it amazing that he's already spoken of two people? He's already spoken of Jesus and of Moses. He said, Jesus was faithful as a son. Jesus was faithful over the household that was his household. And he has proven himself faithful in every way. In other words, Jesus never came to a point where he doubted the Father's will. He never came to a point where he turned away from the Father's will. But Jesus followed the Father's will totally, impeccably, perfectly. And he talked about Moses. Now, Moses' obedience was a bit different, and Moses was not, not like Jesus without any sin in his life. But he said Moses was faithful 
over the household where he was a servant. Jesus served as a son faithfully. Moses served as a servant faithfully. But they were both faithful in keeping their eyes and their purpose and their attention on the living God. You know, I think we could sum up a big part of what much of our problem is in contemporary Christianity. In contemporary walk with Christ, with all of us. We could almost sum it up without any equivocation by saying, you know, our real trouble is, is we take our eyes off of Christ. We take our eyes off of the apostle and the high priest of our confession. We take our eyes off of him when there's trials, when there's struggles, when there's difficulties, and we look around and we say, how can we handle this? Or how can, how can we do what we want to do? Rather than saying, what is it our apostle and high priest of our confession would lead us boldly forward to do? Our problem is, our struggle is, most of the time, if not all of the time, is this problem of where we focus our attention. That was the problem of the Israelites. And so, so the writer here uses two positive examples, Peter and, I mean, excuse me, uh, Moses and Jesus. And then he turns right around and he says, now, in light of those positive examples, in light of all that they did in carrying out what God had called them to do, let me give you a negative example. Let me tell you a, a little bit, and let me quote a little bit of the psalmist about Israel's testing in the wilderness. He said, you know, I, I want you to be like this. I want you to hear the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. If you have the privilege and the responsibility placed on you of hearing God's word, then the, the writer here says, listen to him. Don't harden your heart. Hardened hearts always carry with it the idea of stubbornness and, and, and refusal to listen, refusal to be obedient, refusal to hear what the voice of God is saying and really saying, you know, that's fine and that's good and I know we ought to believe that and we ought to follow that, but i tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to do what I want to do and what makes me feel good and what makes me happy. I'm just going to do whatever it is that I want to do. Well, the writer of Hebrews is saying, listen, it's very, very important if you're going to survive the trials of this world, if you're going to survive the struggles of this world, it's very important that today you listen to the voice of God and not harden your hearts, not become stubborn, and not turn away from what he is saying. He said, you know, it was that time that the writer of Psalm 95 speaks of when he says, they did harden their hearts, and they provoked me. And Moses called that place Meribah, Exodus 17, verses 2 and 4 particularly. If, uh, if you want to turn with me there, you can, or you can just listen. But 17, verses 2 and 4, it says, Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted for there for water and they grumbled against Moses and they said why now have you brought us up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst so Moses cried out to the Lord saying what shall I do to this people a little more and they will stone me then the Lord said to Moses pass before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel I guess those were his bodyguards and take your hand on your staff, which 
with which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I will stand there before you on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it, and the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of all the elders of Israel. He named the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the sons of Israel and because they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Do you see the, the, the ridiculousness of this statement, of this question? Is the Lord among us or not? I mean, these are the ones who saw all of the plagues and saw themselves delivered from a house of bondage and a house of slavery that was unbearable. The Pharaoh just put more and more upon them, making the bricks, building, the t uh, building his, his structures, and, and, and he made it harder and harder on them, and longer hours, and no, not very much food, and not, not very comfortable conditions. And yet when they get out in the wilderness, after all the miracles that led them out of the wilderness, they come to that point, and they say, listen, we're a little thirsty, and we want water, and we want it now. Why did you bring us out here to die of thirst? Is that what you brought us out here for, that we might just thirst to death? Moses said, I, I about had it. He went to God, and that's basically what he said. I about had it with this. These people are grumblers, and they are complainers, and they, they just they won't see your hand. They won't see your work. But rather, they, they just want what they want. They want it right now. They grumbled, and they complained. You see, their problem was this. They were interested in what God did and would do for them in the moment, not in God himself. Oh, they wanted God's protection, and they wanted God's blessing, and they wanted God to make life easy for them, and as long as that was the case, they were happy. But the moment there became a stress, and the moment there became a trial, they became grumblers and complainers before Moses but more seriously than before Moses they became that before God you see the whole thing of Christianity my friend and the whole thing the writer here as he's issuing this warning wants us to see our desire is not to be for the blessings of God our desire is not to be for the things that God will give us or the things that God will do but our desire is to be for God himself that's what we're to pant after. That's what we are to desire. That's what we are to want more than life itself is just a relationship and a knowledge of him, of his attributes. That's why we study his attributes. That's why we study what he is like and we understand his character so that we may know him. Paul said to the Philippians, he said, this is, the, this is what the Christian life is, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed even to his death, that I may know him. That's what Jesus meant in John chapter 17 when he was praying for you and me, and he said, and Father, this is eternal life that they may know you. This is eternal life that they may know you in an intimacy, in a relationship that comes in community within the body of Christ, but also comes in an intimacy between the father and his child, the father and his adopted child, you and me. But they complained, and they grumbled. A complaining spirit in Scripture is always a sign or an indicator of unbelief. 
A complaining spirit. Hear that. That's very important. A complaining spirit. You saw that in your Sunday school lesson this morning as you studied out of Numbers. A complaining spirit is always a sign of unbelief. When we are looking to the Lord and trusting Him and believing Him to be true and telling the truth, and we are following Him with all our heart and all our desires, when we keep our eyes focused on Him, we don't complain. We're grateful, we're thankful, we're, we appreciate, we're believing Him, and we know that even if tough times come, if our focus is on Him, He will see us through it. He will carry us through even the most difficult of times. But a complaining spirit is what these Israelites had. And, and he's afraid that these who are Hebrews, who are, who are in exile, who are scattered because of their faith in Christ, that they will see that there is persecution, there is difficulty, there is probably some famine involved here, much like the children of Israel experienced. And he's saying to them, don't get your eyes off of him just because of circumstances. And he's saying that to you and me. We grumble about how God handles our affairs. It must surely be because we doubt his wisdom or his goodness or maybe even his power to care for us and protect us and to lead us in the midst of the situations in which we find ourselves. You know, the truth is, the children of Israel were happy once or twice in the wilderness when they saw God's hand and God supplied, it all, supplied all their needs. Now, I realize that even in the midst of him supplying their needs, through the manna, they were happy to get the manna to eat at the beginning, but after the manna kept coming and kept coming, and that was what they had to eat, then they began to grumble and struggle a little bit about that, and they wanted quail, and God gave them quail, and he said, they want quail, I'll give them quail, and they had quail until it was coming out of their nostrils. And they said, oh, well, the manna's okay. Go back to that. But the point is, when they took their eyes off of the king, and they did it regularly in the wilderness, when they took their eyes off of God, they doubted him, and they began to show what they really were made of. As a matter of fact, the, the truth is, complaining and grumbling is a, is a symptom of a deeper spiritual problem. If we grumble and complain and revolt and rebel, it indicates a very poor knowledge of God. Maybe religion will be there. Maybe a, a shallow belief will be there, but there's no real knowledge of God. And that's always a problem in the Christian life. Paul said that in, in, to the Philippians. In, in Philippians 2.14, when he said, Listen, the church at Philippi, and they had some of these same problems. He said, listen, do all things without grumbling and complaining, or grumbling and disputing. Do all things that way. Keep your eyes focused on Him, on Christ. Keep your eyes focused on who your Lord is, and you won't have time to grumble and complain. You'll be too busy obeying, too busy following, too busy knowing Him to get all caught up in the complaints of life. One of my favorite Greek words is, is found in that verse, and it's the word for grumbling. I think I've told you this before. It's a, it, it's a derivative of a Greek word that sounds like gogusmus. I just love that word, gogusmus. And, and gogusmus is just a quiet, easy, under-the-surface kind of complaining, grumbling. 
It's not a big flare-up. It's not a big blow-up. It's just, it's just kind of quiet and kind of, kind of subtle to the point that we would describe something today per, perhaps like a, a leaky faucet uh, would be a, a good example of this. Have you ever laid in bed at night and, and, and heard a dripping leaky faucet somewhere else in the house? Maybe in your bathroom, maybe in the kitchen. And you're laying there trying to go to sleep, and that thing just drives you bananas. You can't go to sleep for it. Drip. 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 And you've got to get up and do something. You've got to try to stop it. I mean, you could go in there and turn it on full blast probably and go right back to sleep because it will be a different kind of noise. But that little drip, drip, drip really disturbs your sleep. That's what Paul is saying there. This, this grumbling is something that just disturbs quietly. It's not a loud voice. It's not a loud noise. It's not something that just disrupts everything. It just, it just lays below the surface and grumbles and disturbs and disputes constantly. I love what A.W. Pink said in his commentary on this passage about the whole idea of, of testing and struggles and things that come into our life. Pink said this. He said, Testings reveal the state of our hearts. Trials and testings reveal the state of our hearts. He said, a crisis neither makes nor mars a man, but it does manifest him. I want you to think about that a minute. A testing or a trial does not make you and it does not mar you or destroy you, but it does manifest you. While all is smooth sailing, we appear to be getting along nicely. But are we? Are our minds stayed upon the Lord, or are we instead complacently resting in His temporal mercies? When the storm breaks, it is not so much that we fail under it, as that our habitual lack of leaning upon God, of daily walking in dependence upon Him, is made evident manifested, shown or proven to be the real lack in our daily walk. Testings don't destroy us, they don't make us, but they manifest whether we're looking to Him. So I'm convinced that's why God sends tough things in our lives on a regular basis. Difficult situations. Because when things are smooth, it looks like we're okay. Because we can sit back and say, well, God is so good to me, and I'm so happy because God is so good to me, I'll never complain about anything. And then, bam, something hits, and immediately we go, well, why did you let that happen? I didn't deserve that. I deserve better than that. I don't, I mean, what did I do? What you did was you didn't lean on him during the good times. And he's got to get your attention. He's got to get my attention. And so he does that through the trials. The writer here says, don't take your eyes off of him. Jonathan Edwards, the great, probably the greatest theological mind America's ever produced, in my humble opinion. Jonathan Edwards said, trials have a tendency to distinguish between true religion and false religion and to cause the difference between them to evidently appear. Trials have the tendency to distinguish between real faith and false faith, 
real trust in Christ and just a religious trust in Christ that really doesn't get serious with knowing God. And when those come, the differences become apparent. They become evident. That We've been very religious. We've been very churchy. We've not had a real walk and a real relationship with the one who we need to have a relationship with. That doesn't make God very happy. At least it didn't with the Israelites. It says, you know, I, I saw them. They were always going astray in their heart. They always go astray in their heart. And they did not know my ways. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. You know the rest of the story. There were two problems. There was the problem with the rock that I read out of Exodus. There was a problem in Numbers where they sent the spies over into the promised land. They sent a committee, and the committee went to make a decision. And the committee, just like all good Baptist committees, came because these had to be Baptists in the wilderness. These had to be. They came back out of the promised land, and they said, whoa, that land is flowing with milk and honey. That land is great. That land is, is unbelievable what's there. But there's also one other thing that's unbelievable. It's the size and the power of the people that live there. They're like giants. And they said, well, what are we going to do? God told us to go and take it. And ten of them said, we'll never be able to do it. I'm sorry. Let's all take a vote. All in favor of going in, raise your hand. Two. Joshua and Caleb. All in favor of not going in and just staying right here on this side of the Jordan in Kadesh, raise your hand. Ten of them. And they raised them high. <laughs> we can't do that. What was their problem? Their problem was they believed circumstances more than they believed God. They believed the circumstances that looked so huge and so great, even though the blessings and the benefits were so, so good there. I mean, milk and honey flowing everywhere. And we know that's an imagery of every need, every desire, every want they could have as far as sustenance goes, is there. Ten to two, they vote. No, sorry. Committee rules, majority rules, we're not going to go. Good decision, right? Good way to settle it, right? No. It was horrendous. God said, okay, if that's the way you want to be, if you want to believe circumstances more than you want to believe me, if you want to live in light of your circumstances more than you live, want to live in light of obedience to me and my greater blessings, then that's fine. I am one angry God. Now, I know we don't like that picture. And this is not God just exploding and going off half-cocked like you and I do when we get angry, but it's his sustained holiness against their obvious disobedience he said I was angry with them and I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest the rest was over the Jordan the rest that they could have the the peace and the knowledge of knowing him better was across the Jordan all they had to do was obey all they had to do was say, Lord, you told us to go. You told us you'd be with us. You told us you would give us victory. You told us. You told us. You told us. Let's go. And they said, no, no, no. I don't know if we can trust God to do that or not. You ever been there? 
You ever let circumstances determine how you live more than God's word, God's truth, God's promise, God's intimacy? Have you ever lived in light of just the circumstances and said, you know, if God, surely, surely God says go do this, but if God really wanted me to do that, surely he wouldn't make that obstacle out there. Surely he wouldn't make it difficult. Surely if God's calling me to do something, he'll make it real easy to do. Chances are it'll be just the opposite. Chances are if God's calling you to do something, he'll make it just a tad bit difficult to do. To see if you're going to trust him or trust the difficulty, difficulty of the situation. Well, the writer here quoting Psalm 95 and going on into the, the next part of this and we'll look at it more in depth in two weeks and we'll look at some of the different approaches to this he just simply says to them take care brethren be careful brethren that there be not be any one of you in any one of you an evil unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God You may look at that and say, well, that means you can be saved and you can lose your salvation. You may look at it and say, well, uh, you can be saved and lose some of the blessings and some of the, some of the rewards of your salvation. You may look at it and say, oh, well, that's just a hypothetical thing. I, there, we'll look at all those things in two weeks. But don't you understand there's a real warning here. There's a real warning to you and to me that we ought not let an evil, unbelieving heart. Have you ever, you know, we tend to think of, of those two things is separate, don't we? Evil and unbelieving. Unbelieving is just not believing. Evil is doing something bad. Well, the writer here, the Holy Spirit here, puts them together. And he says, if you have an unbelieving heart, that's an evil heart. So no, 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 I don't always believe God, but I'm a good person. No, if you have an unbelieving heart, that's an evil heart, according to the Holy Spirit. If you don't trust God, it's evil that keeps you from trusting God. It, it, you depend on self and you depend on circumstances and you depend on your strength more than you depend on the power and the promise and the strength of God. Be sure, brethren. Take care, brethren. Watch out, brethren. That there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. He's taking the Israelites as, the, as his basis, his biblical basis for, you, for making that plea. Because the Israelites had a lot of the blessings of God. Just because you've got blessings of God doesn't mean you can't, doesn't mean you know God. There's common grace and there's special grace and there's, there's this common blessing of God that comes to the whole world. Out there this morning, and to, to quote Jesus, the rain falls on the just and the unjust alike. You got wet coming to uh, church this morning. Some of the some unbelievers got wet if they're out running this morning or going to the store or whatever they were doing. I mean, the rain falls on the just and the unjust. If you've already put a garden in, that rain helped your garden. If an unbeliever had already put a garden in, that rain helped his garden. Rain falls on the just and the unjust alike. Just because you see some blessings of God 
doesn't mean that everything's all right. The writer here is begging, he's pleading, he's saying, be certain, be sure that your heart is a believing heart. Be sure that your heart is a trusting heart. Be sure that your heart is not an evil, grumbling, complaining heart, but that your heart is firmly fixed, firmly attached, firmly focused upon the Lord Jesus Christ. So I'd ask you, just as we close, Where's your heart? What's your heart believing in, trusting in, and looking to? Are you trusting and obeying the circumstances? Are you trusting and obeying God and His Word? Let's pray. Father, we bow before you this morning. Acknowledging, even as we acknowledged earlier, O Lord, that there is much sin about us. And we ask, O Lord, that you would crucify it. There's much disobedience in our flesh. And we ask you, Lord, to mortify that. Put it to death. Father, we acknowledge that you are our hope. But you know, we can, we can talk about the gospel being the only way. We can talk about Jesus being the only way. We can, we, we can just sort of shallowly believe that all that's true and never repent and fully believe it with all our heart. Never fully cast ourselves upon the absolute grace of God with nothing in my hand I bring simply to your cross I cling Father this Easter week this resurrection week I pray Lord that you will show us if we just have a shallow false faith if we just believe that something is true but never really believe in it with all our heart well, the apostle Paul said if he said quite simply if you believe in your heart that Jesus is the Christ and believe that you raised him from the dead we will be saved and that means trust and obedience and repentance because of your grace because of your work within our life Father let us draw close to you for this is our prayer in Jesus name